You know, we all need a recipe that will basically get us laid, right? Or get us that second date. <laughs> so homemade pasta was your getting laid dish. Like if I was making you homemade pasta, like I, A, I know I was probably going to get lucky and B, like, like I just never like invited someone over and made them homemade pasta where they weren't just like, oh my God, like, what are you making? Like, welcome to the catch up. Introducing your hosts, Eli Aruth. Editor and Jeffrey Kutnick, CEO, and apparently the only guy who takes this podcast seriously. Of the craziest, most bestest, news breaking, food porn peddling, viral website on the dot coms. It's crazy when your future is decided by an algorithm. Dude, this pizza is fucking crazy. There's not one person in this entire world that believes you. All right. And welcome to the catch up. Our guest today is a restaurateur who's had his hand in over 20 restaurants in Southern California, creating some of the wildest menu items we've had the pleasure of covering. Mm. Things such as the spaghetti and meatball pizza, mm. eggs Benedict pizza. Oh, yeah. And those were both at Ginny's Pizzeria. He also created my personal favorite fried chicken of all time. Thank you. You've seen him on Travel Channel's Food Paradise, ABC's The Taste, LA Travel Magazine, LA Weekly, and at Smorgasburg. And as a caterer to the stars and restaurant consultant, he makes time to answer food questions on Quora, where he's amassed over 1 million views on his elaborate answers to food questions like, what 10 dishes every person should know how to cook by the time they're 30? He's also opened multiple restaurants and businesses with a significant other, and it's here to shed light on those experiences. You can find him on Instagram, Noon at Nathaniel's. Welcome to the podcast, Thank Nathaniel Nguyen. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, what's up, Doug? Yeah, super excited to be here. This is my first podcast to be on. Yeah, okay. Love podcasts. I love what you guys do, so... Well, you're close enough to the mic. It's perfect. <laughs> this isn't, we're good. <laughs> Dude, I loved your article, by the way. The, my, you. My fa- you have a ton of them, but yeah. my favorite one was that one of like what 10 dishes you need to know how to cook by the time you're 30. And I was ready to fight you on it. Like I, have, like, fight, like, I was just like, bro, I know how to cook. I don't know how to cook at all. But uh, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. What, what brought you to Cora? Because I, I think that's a, a social network that doesn't get a lot of play in conversation. Um, it doesn't necessarily, you know, have the hype of an IG or things of that nature. But for, for people who don't know what Quora is, I love it. And I can't say that I'm an avid user, but it has come clutch in very specific moments when you're looking for specific information and crowdsourced upvotes on that information so i think similarly to reddit there's this there's this crowdsourcing of of good information but then it's in a ui interface that i actually like it's a better yahoo <laughs> answers too yeah like definitely I, and definitely I, and i i'm like you jeff like i forget to use quora but when i remember it's a fucking wormhole like i'm in it of just good knowledge like that's ugh. anyway so why quora yeah, it's super easy to get lost into Quora. Um, so I picked I picked Quora because it's not hyped up. Um, I you know I felt like 
doing something on Instagram or YouTube or Facebook or Twitter was a little too public. And I was afraid of like people seeing what I was doing while I was doing it. I know that sounds weird, but I, I just kind of wanted to be able to do something and enjoy it, you know, and, and that's why I chose core. I've been a passive user for such a long time. I, um, got signed up to their, they do it like an email list. Like if you sign up and you get like a daily digest and their algorithm just like knows what you love and it can be that wormhole that you were talking about. And after a while, I guess I finally just got the courage to start writing. And that's how I started on it. Yeah. And were you writing before you were amassing tons of views on Quora? Was there personal blogging? Was there uh, a level of were c- contributing to publications? Was there a level of writing experience that you had coming to Quora? I don't know this answer, but I'm assuming that answer is yes because of how well written and framed these Quora articles are. Mm-hmm. I mean, before the podcast, Eli and I were talking about, man, that's an evergreen piece that we just want on our site right now. I mean, we were reading these Quora articles going, Bro, I we, got our contributor agreement right after the podcast. <laughs> you, you signed a podcast agreement, but on the way out, you're going to sign a contributor agreement. It's going to be all foobies tonight. Um, yeah, I, I I actually really love writing. I think I love writing just as much as I love cooking, and not a lot of people know that about me. I mean, if you follow me on Instagram, I love telling like little food stories about my dad and my experiences with food on there. And those posts always got a lot of engagement and got a lot of really great supportive feedback. Um, and I did have a blog like back in the day that I wrote on, and that also got a lot of feedback and support as well. And so coming on to Quora was kind of like a way for me to expand on all of that and create a little bit more of long format content. Did, did you join it also too? Because to me, creating a blog now and your own website now, as much as it's potentially easier to create your website and put content on now than it is ever before, Trafficking that website seems really hard. Yeah. And even at Food Beast, there are difficulties that we have on our own to maintain levels of traffic. So do you also see these platforms as the new the new blogs? Because creating a domain and trafficking that domain is so hard versus if you can write the best answer to a specific question that acknowledges your own personal expertise. It's a chance to get seen by tens of thousands of people if, if you're doing it correctly. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that that's something I definitely went into Quora with in, in mind. You know, I, I, when I started writing on Quora, I had a goal. I was going to write 30 days straight, and my goal was to reach a million um, views on my answers. And I also kind of wanted to see what type of traffic I could get from Quora as well. So I was like linking back to some videos I have on YouTube. Um, I linked to a landing page that had like an email opt-in form. I just was really curious, but it, you know, I, I definitely agree with you in that, you know, it, it was nice because I knew there was already an audience of people who loved reading. And so it was a great way for me to have my stuff be seen by people instead of trying to build that traffic organically. So you, you, you created, you went in writing there to express yourself or you went in writing there because you knew if I get enough traffic and I throw like a link to my pizzeria at the end, they'll be like, oh shit, that's a good traffic driver to my pizzeria. 
I I definitely went there to write to express myself, but I also, mm-hmm. I, you know, as because I was running a business, right? Like I'm always curious about metrics and data and insight. And I, I think that was an element of it that I wanted to track just to see how it would do. Mm. Yeah. How'd you get into food in general? Because I think, uh, I know a lot of your writing kind of goes up to the present present day. Uh, but what jump started you into restaurants, into, into food? I think what really got me to love food so much was the fact that my dad didn't want me to love food. And if you know my relationship with my dad, like we don't see eye to eye very often. Um, But when it comes to food, we both have the same level of passion. And I think because he saw that when I was younger, he kept me away from the kitchen like very aggressively, like would not let me touch a knife because I was too young or would get upset at my grandma if she enlisted my help in the kitchen. And when you're a kid and someone tells you not to do something, you want to do it more and more and more. And I think I was a very rebellious kid. So the more he told me no, the more I wanted to do it. And kind of one of the turning points that really encouraged me to really get in the kitchen and learn how to cook was when I was a very demanding child And my dad was a great cook and he made so many dishes that I loved that I would just request them over and over again. And I just remember one day my dad saying to me when I was younger, you know, if you want to eat this stuff, you're going to have to learn how to make it for yourself. And I don't think he actually meant that, but I took it as like, he gave me the okay (laughs) to learn. Yeah. And then then from there, I would just like behind his back, just like cook with his recipe books, he had had like cookbooks and stuff. I'd go to the library and get like cookbooks and I'd start practicing and teaching myself. I remember one time I was trying to make steamed bow buns in my bedroom with a little butane burner. And when <laughs> Why I was in your bedroom, <laughs> because I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want to get in trouble for cooking. I mean, I legitimately would get in trouble for being in the kitchen. My dad didn't want me to have anything to do with that. He wanted me to do, you know, what. A lot of other families and immigrant families, you know, want their kids to do. They want them to do a job that isn't, you know, labor intensive and hard work. And my dad, I think, was very afraid of me loving food so much that I wanted to get into that industry, which, you know, is very hard. What does your dad do? My dad actually is right now he works um, at an auto shop. He's a parts manager. Okay. Yeah. So he he, he wasn't involved with food at all. So he. Why was he so afraid I mean, he didn't want you to get in love with food and, and potentially find a career within food. Is that what it was? And I, and I think to double off Eli's question, we've had multiple guests on the podcast talk about parents shifting their kids away from food toward a quote unquote better life, toward education, toward business, finance, real estate, whatever. So yeah, I'm curious, did, did your dad have experience with food? before or did he just understand the nuances of how hard that labor was and was doing everything he could to protect his son from that life yeah he was definitely protecting me he definitely was really well networked you know he had lots of friends that owned restaurants we actually had a family member that owned and operated a Vietnamese restaurant as well so he's very familiar with that lifestyle for sure and I think was just you know I he said um, to me one time you know I didn't work so hard for you to have to work so hard yeah. We were talking about this a lot in the office too. I was just talking about it with Izzy of we feel like we should know our parents' recipes, but there is this energy in the kitchen growing up. At least there was for me where my mom didn't want me in there. 
And I don't know, like, is it just looking back? Are we annoying kids? And like, obviously, if we're in the kitchen, like at seven and eight years old, like we're not in there to try to learn the craft. We're in there to fucking throw flour around and like (laughs) run between your mom's legs and like play with the fire and the burner because like this is where the fire is in the house. And now that we're a little bit older, I'm like, damn, I actually wish I knew how to make, for example, like my mom's garlic or hummus or whatever. Like why... I don't know. Is is that with you guys too? Like, do you guys feel like that in the kitchen? Was your Jeff? Was your mom like a little more receptive, like wanting to teach you stuff? My mom did not want to teach me shit. Get out of the kitchen, Eli. I think my mom was receptive to a point, and I think what what happens with kids, especially, God, I was ADD as a kid then. I, I'm curious about how ADD kids are now, <laughs> but. When I saw my mom in the kitchen and she's frying up pot stickers, for for example, I'd be like, "Yeah, I want to do that. Giant chopsticks in in a pan, <laughs> like that looks fun." But making the pot stickers is an arduous task that I wanted no part of, and so I think that's something. As a kid, you see fire, you see movement, you see action, you see knife, exciting. But what's actually going into that process is hours of work and not every step in that process as a kid do you want to be a part of that. And so I think my mom was open to it, but she wasn't going to necessarily be like, hey, yeah, fry these hot pot stickers in hot oil, one for safety, two because you don't know what you're doing. Or was your mom selfish and didn't want you to take the fun part? She's like, oh, look, I've been slaving over these pot stickers all damn day. You want to come in and light the fire? Fuck off, Jeff. Your mom would never say that. (laughs) She would never say that. But what's funny now is I fry the pot stickers now at home because there eventually was like, there isn't a passing of the torch because she still cooks way more than I do. But over time... I understood, oh, three minutes aside or whatever. Like, that's something that I can understand. And I could help her in that way. She knew she could get to a point in the process, hand it over. I'm not an idiot. I can do it. I'm not going to burn the house down and do that. But I think as a kid with that level of ADD, I don't know how much you can actually help actually learn unless you're Nathaniel and and you're like, waiting for your chance to learn everything you you can well yeah i mean looking back at it like i remember as a kid watching my mom and like my grandma for example rolling grape leaves and that is hours for something that ends up being eaten in seconds and as a child, you don't give a fuck about that shit. Like, you, I don't want to sit. It's not fun for you to <laughs> yeah. sit at a table for an hour and roll grape leaves and and pat the leaves down with water, let them soak, put the rice in, all that stuff. It's not fun. I'd rather be on Donkey Kong. But like. <laughs> True. Not like literally on Donkey Kong. Actually, I'd be so tight if you were literally on Donkey Kong and got to like ride around. No one thought you were literally on Donkey Kong. That clarification yeah. makes no sense. But now Some everybody's visualizing it. But not everyone. And I love it. And yeah. I just love it. Imagine a, a game where you actually got to ride on Donkey Kong. VR needs to handle this shit. But, but now growing older, that's actually a really dope thing to do. Yeah. At least for me, is like I can now sit, roll grape leaves, and watch a game or have a conversation with my mom. That's something tight, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're having this realization of like, 
learning from your parents is tight. Like being able to carry on those traditions and it's a little bit of a segue into one of the items on your must know list by the time you're 30. Yeah. Um, so I, I, let's talk about that list a little bit. Yeah. And I, I think that's a great transition because my parents also made shish kebabs for uh, an Asian style version of shish kebabs for our family parties. And as a kid, that was something where my mom could control me sit me down mm. the meat was marinated she gave me sticks she said fold the meat like this yeah then do veggie then do meat then do veggie then do pineapple meat again i did that and, too that's and, so cool and over and over yeah like you can understand this and you can do it as a kid i didn't like doing it but then once you're old enough to understand the emotional power that comes with providing for a for a family member later that evening. Yeah. God, that makes that activity really fun now. And mm. now when I go back home for our family New Year's party or whatever it is, I love sitting and making those shish kebabs. But I think it took the maturity to understand that it's not just for the activity of what you're doing. You're doing something for a bigger purpose, which I think goes directly into why you, chicken soup is your number one on your list of the things you should know how to cook before you're 30. Yeah, yeah. I cover like 10 different things that you know I personally think are super important to learn and, and not just the dish themselves. I feel like you can read the list and relate them to recipes in your life that are similar because you know I know everyone has different experiences with food. You know. Let me read this list and then let's jump into it. So yeah. guys, this is the 10, these are the 10 dishes that every person should know how to cook by the time they're 30. Go ahead, fight us. One, chicken soup. Two, vanilla cake with sprinkles. Three, scrambled eggs. Four, pho, a Vietnamese beef noodle soup. Five, tamales. Six, homemade pasta. Seven, roasted chicken. Eight, banana bread, nine, chili, and ten, creamed corn. What I love about this list so much, Nathaniel, and, and I definitely want you to speak on it, but there's justifications for these in a way that's really well thought out. We we work in a media landscape where it's a 20-something job to create a list of things they don't necessarily have any sort of experience with those things it's a long enough list to be 34 things you should eat and it sucks and i get why people read it because it's a curated list of some kind that connects to kittens or or something and, and I get why it exists because the content side of me know that it performs and taps into these, the comprehensive one-stop shop forms of media content that people like. So I'm not against the list, but what I love about your list are the justifications. Because even for example, you mentioned pho, and I think that's going to be a big debate with our audience because they're going to be like, 
I'm not Vietnamese. Why is it essential to me? I don't I don't know how to make pho. Like I go out for pho. Blah blah blah. Shut up. Nathaniel, why is pho important and your justification for it? Yeah, so I included pho on my list because pho I'm Vietnamese, right? So pho is like the national dish of Vietnam and it represents everything about my culture and my heritage and my history. And I think that everybody has a piece of culture, heritage, and history that they could learn in the kitchen. And it's so important to be connected to that and to stay connected to that. And and with food, you can share that with other people. You know, I can tell you all the number of, you know, there's so many people that I know in my life that have never had pho before and I took them out to go eat it or I've cooked it for them that now they're so interested in Vietnamese cuisine, food, culture, and history because of that one dish and everyone probably has a dish out there that's listening that that they know, okay, if I share this dish with someone, that that's going to inspire that person to learn more about who I am as a person and, and more about my culture and my history. And when you see how much someone loves a dish that represents who you are, it just makes you feel a lot better about yourself and more proud of who you are. And I think that's so important. So pho is the interchangeable item on this list, right? Like yeah. That's the one like whatever culture you resonate with or you subscribe to, like that's that dish. So if it's not pho for me, I got to learn how to make that hummus or I got to make that grape leaf. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for me, it would probably be my learning how to make my mom's sukiyaki. What's sukiyaki? Sukiyaki is, you've you've seen various forms of, of hot pot and shabu mm. is in the same at, in the same uh, atmosphere, I guess. It's in the same arena but different because versus what you're cooking in hot hot pot or for shabu a lot of times you're dipping in like flavored water versus uh with 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 that dish you're actually cooking everything in a specific savory sauce um so instead of dipping after the fact in ponzu for sukiyaki it's kind of cooked in that sauce and it's typically or the way my mom did it and again it's going to be different but it's a it's a giant pot for everybody in the center of the table and the meats and stuff are already in the pot yeah and, and you just go after it and so it's more important about like the marinade that you're making it with than it is uh anything else Fire. But I'll, I'll invite yeah. you over. It's 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 amazing. It. It's also something that if you you know if you dip sukiyaki meat or shabu meat into raw egg, it'll change your fucking life. And I've I you were there when uh, when we had shabu when I experienced it for the first time. It's America. You have to be careful about your eggs, and you have to be careful about all that. But if you can source the right egg. The texture change from thinly sliced marinated beef that's cooked that you dip into egg. Meat becomes buff, dog. It's crazy. Like what it does to your mouth is one of the most firework explosions that I can, that I can, that I've ever experienced. Further proof that eggs make everything better, right? (laughs) Yo, talk about scrambled eggs. Talk, that's on your list. Scrambled eggs. And I I resonate with that. Go ahead. Yeah. So another one on the list is, is scrambled eggs. It's one of those dishes that I felt like you just had to include because we've all been there, right? Like where we're just like starving, we're at home, there's like nothing to eat. And we look through our fridge and we're like, what can we make? Like I have 
no money or I'm too lazy to go out and get something. And like eggs for me was always that dish. It was something that I could make that was quick. It was easy. It was cheap. It was filling. And and we all get to a point in our life where we need cheap, easy, filling food to make. And, you know, and um, Eli and I were talking about this earlier, you know, and, and eggs are like the basis of so many other things in the kitchen. So like starting with eggs and like learning how to do those well, you can like do anything you want after that. You can make sukiyaki. <laughs> How important is it to be able to crack an egg with one hand? Because, yo, because, <laughs> okay, I, I don't know, I don't know that shit will when get you, you laid, learn, bro. if you learn or whatever, but I remember it's probably three or four years into Food Beast where I just, it was a personal goal to figure it out. And so I went through probably like two dozen eggs and even then wasn't figuring it out but then was getting closer so did you <laughs> do it like i can do it now but i just thought it was a really funny process for me to waste two dozen eggs to learn how and i did it i'm assuming you do it because you want it to be able to execute faster is that where the basis of cracking with one egg or is it just a hype move for all chefs just be like yup i do this a it's, lot yo it's gotta be efficient there's no way you're gonna watch like gordon ramsay two-hand an egg and like crack it over dude to be honest i'm a uh, we all know i'm an awful cook um but one thing i pride myself on is i crack an egg with one hand and it's tight too because the way i learned i had to fuck up a few eggs to do it but i did everything from like tapping it on the side of a bowl that didn't work and then I just realized it's all just, it's super confident. I would just, I just slam an egg, right? I whole fist it, slam an egg, and I take my thumb and my pinky and I just split it in half. And then I pour it. And even if there's fucking chunks, like even if there's eggshell in it, no one fucking knows if it's your dish. But they see you from a distance if they're watching TV and they're yeah. watching you cook. They're like, yo, damn, you can crack egg. This yo, so you're doing it for the hype? Hell yeah, sure. doing it for the hype. <laughs> Where have you been this whole podcast experience? Everything I do is for the hype. Yeah, like I'll look peel, at Salt Bay. Like. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the shells out myself. I'm not going to serve you a dish with shells in it. But the ex, the visual experience of having Eli cook for you, dude can crack an egg with one hand. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but do you do that when you're home alone? I still do it because like, you got to practice. Do you amp yourself up? Yeah. yeah, it's good for yeah, the yeah. muscle memory. Oh, you dude, gotta... when I do it at home and it works, like I pat myself on the back. I just give myself a little head bob. <laughs> With whatever music, little Takashi Six Nine, I'm listening. To, I'm like, yeah, this shit happens, bro. Yeah, no, that I'm I hard. mean, you, you bring up a good point. It's good to have hype moves and dishes. I think I wrote about one. Uh, my number six one is, you know, that homemade pasta we were talking about. Like, you gotta have, you know, mm. I think it's super important. You gotta have a, a recipe, a dish to impress, you know. And like, if if like scrambled eggs with a one hand crack is the thing, like, you know, we all need a recipe that will basically get us laid, right, or get us that second date. <laughs> So homemade pasta was your getting laid dish. Like if I was making you homemade pasta, like I, A, I know I was probably going to get lucky and B, like, like I just never like invited someone over and made them homemade pasta where they weren't just like, oh my God, like, what are you making? Like it's, it's, I, I don't know. Like I walked into someone's house and they were like, their hands were covered in flour and they opened the door and they were like, Hey, the homemade pasta is almost done. Do you mind waiting? Like I, like you got me. They just like, sit on the couch. Wet yeah. Like, fuck. could you imagine like, you know, their, I just, their clothes are already off. Yeah. Like <laughs> just damp walking into your kitchen. Bro. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's so. Okay. So homemade pasta. You, I get it. I know. I vibe with that now. I vibe yeah. with that too. And, what I like about this list, it's replaceable. 
So like he mentioned in the sense of homemade pasta, by the way, it shouldn't be replaced. You should do that. But if there's a version of something that you can that has that sex appeal. So if you're going to if you're going to put your cast iron and sear, you know, sear your steak mm. and they're there for that like beautiful moment. Yeah. There's just like a sex appeal towards that. So if you think about it in that way, it can be homemade pasta, but it also might be something just, that just has that sex appeal. Maybe because I don't know how to make homemade pasta. Shit sounds dusty, dude. Like, <laughs> like how's that? <laughs> like, I'll just imagine like a sexy thing going on. Like, yeah. Like, maybe, you, obviously, the way you're explaining it sounds way sexier than how it's playing out in my head. But for me, if I'm wearing an apron and I got like dust and flour all over the place, dust. I got to take a shower before I come back down, like while the pasta boils. <laughs> like, no, I think Nathaniel's point is the I fact that <laughs> you. You're putting on an apron. It's covered in flour. There's effort going into this yeah. thing. Yeah. And I think that's what gets conveyed immediately is I didn't I didn't buy refrigerated Bertoli and throw it in that pot, which yeah. would probably maybe you wouldn't even know, right? But you know that I made this and took the time to do this and it's just for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. that's cool. I, I love it. You, Nathaniel, you put tamales on your list. You already mentioned you're, you're Vietnamese. So how is that Mexican holiday staple make your list and why? So like just as much as I think it's so important to be proud of who you are, I think it's really important to learn about other people, right? Learn about other cultures that are out there. And for me, the one way that I love to do that is learning to cook other dishes from other cultures and tamales was like one of those first dishes I remember learning how to make in college and I'd never been to a Mexican supermarket before and I didn't know what I was getting I didn't know what I was looking for and the only way I was able to complete the recipe was I had to tap you know that that mom next to me and ask her hey where do I find corn husk you know and just a smile on her face to just see someone who's clearly not Mexican in this grocery store, like clearly I hope she believes that I was making tamales. Right. And like leading me to the corn husks. Like I just have that memory and just loved how excited she was, you know, and, and it made me excited because I got to talk to people that I normally wouldn't have conversations with. You know, I got to do research and learn about things that I didn't know about. And now when I go to a Mexican supermarket, I feel right at home. I know where everything is. And it's because of learning to make those dishes outside of your comfort zone that really pushes you as a person. And the conversation that it strikes is is really fun because I just took a tamale class at Northgate Market. Shout out Northgate. Shout out Northgate real quick. But <laughs> I took it with Rudy, a fellow Food Beast co-founder and his girlfriend. And we actually ran into friends that we knew. But the amount of joy we experienced just from tackling something we had never done before. And it wasn't the full tamale making. I mean, we didn't put them on the stove and we didn't steam them and there were elements of it of yeah. education though but the conversation it sparked and the you know the activity surrounding that newness and everybody's new that means everybody's comfortable and i think that's something where you don't really get unless you you know you explore outward and and find those new things yeah yo people ask me a lot of questions of where i eat shout out to uh this place called El Cholo in LA. 
And in uh, Corona Del Mar, $5 incredible tamales. It's a little expensive, but it comes with beans, rice. I, I got lit there last night. <laughs> and I just, I always have to shout out really good food spots. I loved it. Anyways, tamales. Hey, pardon the interruption. Catch up listeners, I'm hitting you with a quick little mid-roll gift. This is not an ad. It is a gift. For everyone who's interested in getting some fun food clothing and bags for the new year, Food Beast online shop, uh, you can get free shipping off all your orders. Anything that clocks in over 35 bucks, free shipping on it, and you can use code KETCHUPGANG, I repeat, KETCHUPGANG, and you will get 36% off the order. That's crazy. We probably lose money on that. I don't know. I'm, it's 36% because I made the code up. Um, but that's free shipping, 36% off all the dope Food Beast athletic stuff, that sweet pizza slayer shirt, the thank you tote bags. Legit, this discount only goes to the catch-up listeners. We don't list it publicly anywhere else. So hopefully y'all get to scoop up some stuff for yourselves or the other foodies in your life. Go ahead and jot down shop.foodbeast.com and use code Ketchup Gang, and it'll wipe 36% off your order. And on top, again, if you if you order over 35 bucks in the store, it's completely free shipping. So you guys have a, a, a beautiful holidays and you'll get that gear in the new year. So from your boys, Eli, Jeff, and Izzy, thank you guys for listening. And let's get back to the show. When did you go into restaurants? Because I think for me, uh, knowing that at the very least you had sounds like really delicious, well-prepared food at home, when did you work at your first restaurant and how did it happen because i imagine that you know that's a crucial step before you become restaurateur so when what when was that and what was your experience yeah so my first job in the restaurant industry was when i'd just gone to college and i needed a part-time job and i just went and applied at like the only restaurant that was like familiar to me because my family are great cooks. So we didn't go eat out a lot. And my dad would take us to the old spaghetti factory back home. And so that was like, there was one in town. So I'm like, I'm going to go apply there because I know that restaurant. And of course, when they hear that, like in your interview, like my dad used to take me here, like, why do you want this job? Right? Like they hired me on the spot. And like, I didn't care what I was doing. Like I was a bus boy and I was like super stoked for it. I was like the only English speaking bus boy. And I just like loved it. And, and I remember my first week, I was like, I want to work in restaurants like for the rest of my life, you know, but I kept that to myself. But that's that's how I got my start. And from there, you know, I I like had a weird transition because I started in the front of the house and like slowly made my way into the kitchen. You know, I feel like a lot of people don't really go into a restaurant saying like, I want to be a chef someday. But I did like that was my goal. And from there, just like, you know worked my way through all of these restaurants before I finally had the opportunity to open Ginny's. And that was kind of like, like one of my real first restaurants. Like I worked on a food truck and I had a pop-up, but like Ginny's was like my first project that was going to be open seven days a week, you know, lunch and dinner. Shout out to Ginny's. What, what started, what, what was the tipping point to be able to open Ginny's? Like to be able to open a restaurant, you're working all you're working all the other jobs, right? Bus boy, work your way up, and like, what what was like? Was there a certain amount of money that was like this is enough for me to open a restaurant? Was there a certain partner allowed yeah. you to open a restaurant? Yeah, because that was also a big summary of I think a really big period of yeah. of life, 
and and not to say that that's wrong or anything uh, i think that's great but i know that there was a catering business so what are the things that before you open Ginny's, do you think were the dominoes to i'm ready to open that because yeah i'm curious about what those dominoes for you what you think they should be for other people because there's a number of people listening to this podcast that want to open a restaurant when did you feel comfortable doing that and what with your previous experience with your pop-ups with the food truck with with the catering did you think that okay it's time to give this a shot yeah um so the funny thing is right it's like i don't feel like you're ever going to be ready to open <laughs> sure. a restaurant if the opportunity had not presented itself i don't know that i would have really been able to take that leap on my own you know eli was talking about like was it a money thing like and the funny thing i learned about it now is like you could never have enough money to open the restaurant the way you want to like you you could have a million dollars and you still would feel like that's not enough you know so it it wasn't a money thing it, i think it was just like having the opportunity right first is one of the most important things. And when I had the opportunity to open Ginny's at 4th Street Market, uh, a mutual friend of ours, um, Bobby, you know, shout out to Bobby, um, was the one who got me to sit down and have this conversation with the landlord over there. And I had never done a pizza place. So I was like absolutely in no way ready for this because I didn't, I wouldn't say like it wasn't a dream of mine to like open a restaurant, but it, it, it wasn't a dream of mine to open a pizza restaurant. Like, you know, I wanted to serve Asian food. And so like, I kind of, you know, was like, Hey, like we really need good pizza. Like, is that something you'd want to do? And I have this bad habit of not being able to say no. So I was like, sure, I'll do it. I'll do a pizza place. <laughs> was it, wait, was it that simple? Essentially? Like that's how the conversation went. It was like, what's missing in downtown Santa Ana. And it was like good pizza. And it was like, could you do it? Cause I wanted to do Asian. Right. But then like, um, there are other concepts. there were other concepts yeah. there and it was like eh, that's already kind of taken like could you do anything else and I was like sure like I'd be open to it and then the pizza came up and I was just like yes that's wild like that's crazy oh we need pizza in this area <laughs> that doesn't have pizza let's hit up the Vietnamese I guy mean, I, like, <laughs> here's the, I mean it's not I don't want to say it's not totally crazy but I feel like did you say yes on the spot I, I didn't say no <laughs> I, I think I was like, ah, oh, put together a menu, like see what that looks like, like see what I could come up with. And so essentially I said yes. And, yeah. what, and what about the opportunity made it so appealing to not do Asian food or to not go in a different direction or just to wait and continue your catering business and, and not go into restaurants? What was, was it, did it feel like the right moment because of, and we know where you were, the the 4th Street Market, which is a food hall in Southern California, and, and we know it pretty intimately, our, our, food hall, our food studio kitchen is there, things like that. But was it just something where, hey, the combination of no pizza in this market, plus economics that are friendly from a, being in a food stall and not opening something with a six-figure infrastructure build and a seven-year lease and kind of all that BS that comes out with big restaurants. Were those the things saying, knocking at your door, like, hey, Nathaniel, this this is an opportunity. There's no pizza here. I think I think you can do it. And then it was just, let's let's grab this moment, you know, yeah, I think by it, the horns. You know, I, I think it's important, you're right, to, like, talk about, like, the things that kind of happened before that leading up to it. Like, 
I was running a really successful catering business, right? And like I was cooking for all of these people. And I think as a chef, like for all chefs, for anybody who's an artist, like the, you're, I think the most joy you get out of your art is being able to share it with as many people as possible. And with catering, I didn't feel like that many people had access to my food mm-hmm. and in a way that wasn't super fulfilling. And I had been doing that for so long that when this opportunity came for me to share what I love, cooking and food, with basically anyone who would come up and order, like that was so hard for me as an artist to say no, you know, and, and that definitely drove me to to want to open up. And on top of that, there was like constant conversations always going on about all these other opportunities where I had investors that wanted to invest in restaurants, but all of those deals kind of like fell through. So when I finally had this opportunity to do something where I didn't really need to pull in investors, like, and I could finally be in control of my own dream, like it was, it was definitely an opportunity knocking very loudly. And did you know when you were going to open a restaurant that you wouldn't be able to continue in the same way or couldn't continue the catering business at all because of the demands of a restaurant? Like how much did you think I'm going to keep the catering business, which by the way, you haven't mentioned it, but you had clients like Red Bull. You were serving celebrities in Los Angeles. You talked about already being a successful business. How hard was that decision to open that restaurant knowing that it it would affect? And then second question, did it affect and did you have to stop catering altogether once you opened a seven day a week, you know, whatever it was, 11 to nine restaurant, uh, plus all the prep that goes in into the every day? Um, I definitely think I was mistaken thinking I could juggle everything. Um, so it did affect the catering business. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it was really hard to see it affect the catering business because I had like built it up for so long, but the satisfaction and and the fulfillment I got from opening Ginny's kept me going. I mean, like a month and a half after we opened, we made OC Register's top 20 pizzas. And I think that for me just solidified why I opened the restaurant and why I should keep going. And I, and I definitely didn't want to stop after that. How did you, from that conversation about needing pizza spot in Santa Ana to actually opening what was that like like what what goes into it you said you didn't need an investor all that I'm just I'm always curious about how restaurants actually open up and like the days leading the months leading up the days leading up how did you learn how to make pizza like were you making pizza (laughs) you know like what what how yeah, with the, I mean, with the catering business, we were making flatbreads, right? So like okay. with our catering business, we didn't have like set menus. It was always kind of like, what does our client want, you mm-hmm. know? And then being challenged to do whatever it is they want. We had a client that came back from New York and she was like, I want you to recreate the entire tasting menu at per se, but can you put your twist on it? <laughs> and I'd like never eaten there. <laughs> tell, so, tell, our, tell our audience what, what per se is and their accolades first, please. Per se is like a Michelin starred restaurant by Thomas Keller. He has a location in New York. Like, <laughs> like it, like he has like a team of like all of these amazingly classically trained chefs, like probably like hundreds of people that prepare this like tasting menu. And I had a client that was just like, redo it for me. I miss That's it. That's an insane request. <laughs> That's a crazy request. How did it go? Luckily, I like love Thomas Keller. Like one of his first, one of my first cookbooks was his. 
Um, so I was like so honored to be able to like do something that was inspired by him. And I definitely put my own twist on it. I'd never been to the restaurant, so I don't know how I did, but she loved it for sure. Yeah. So that so you had you had some working knowledge of how to make flatbread and how to position that into pizza. So and did you also did that help you understand the the economics? Was like that like you know what dough, water, sauce, toppings. Exactly. Yeah. When you like learn the basics and you know, but the one thing about me, I was actually just having a conversation with my brother about this earlier this morning. It's like I'm not afraid to ask for help. Mm. You know, I knew this was going to be a challenging experience for me, and I was very lucky to have so many friends in this industry already that I could go to and say, hey, like, I got to open a pizza restaurant and I've never done this before. Like, what could you tell me? What could you teach me that I have to know? Because everyone makes mistakes and I wanted to keep myself from making those same mistakes. But most importantly, I was super lucky because I had a great team already in place through the catering company that I, like, I could trust everyone to help me put all these pieces together and get the restaurant open when it needed to. Because I think the opportunity came like at the end of November, and we had to be open by February, which if anyone out there is trying to open a restaurant, like that's not that's a lot of time at all. You know, like when we opened our fried chicken restaurant, Rooster Republic, we had like a year and a half to plan for that one. So like Ginny's, we, were, we had to do it in like two to three months. And that was like, you know, I couldn't have done it without them, like to have people to say, hey, like your job today is I need you to help me finalize this dough recipe. So we need to make 14 variations today. You know, I couldn't have done it without all of their help. So I definitely wasn't alone. And I think that's the most important part. It's like I had the right support. You talked about variations and Ginny's broadcasted itself as a New York style pizzeria. In your R&D, how did you measure or search for authenticity and what what would end up being a big marketing aspect of that? Because... I think the stories people hear in relation to, you know, people traveling to countries to view ingredients. I mean, New York pizza is such a food media thing about potentially water and and things of that nature that are nebulous and no one really knows what the secret is, etc. I'm curious about how you approached it because... Yeah, I'm always curious when a restaurateur is doing an allusion to, and that's allusion with an A, not an I, toward a food. Like, what's their process to make it as best as they can, as authentic they can, but still be yours versus someone in New York? Yeah. Um. So with New York pizza, oh, like you know, now that you know Ginny is no longer operating, I feel like really safe and okay to say this. Like, but I've never been to New York. <laughs> you know, New Yorkers are going to come out right? I've never been to New York so I've never had pizza from New York but I had this like oh vision of opening a New York pizza place and it's um, you know and I feel so safe saying that now like that's such a relief to get off my shoulder you just have no idea find you <laughs> like I had to like hide that secret from people because I was afraid if they knew that that they would not give our pizza a chance sure. you know um, but I so I named it after a, my, like one of my best friends her name is Jin and she actually is from New York 
And so whenever we would hang out, like she would just get like cheese pie and she'd call it pie, right? So we'd get a cheese pie and we'd split it. And she would just sit there and talk about how much she missed pizza in New York. And, you know, as a chef, like dining in her company, right? Anytime someone tells me, oh, this doesn't taste like the way I remember it. And I'd be like, why? What is what's missing? So she didn't know it at the time, but she had like been helping me over all of these years formulate, in her opinion, what great New York pizza should be like. And knowing that and having that foundation and and having her in my corner to be able to taste the pizza and say, you're getting close or it needs to be more like this to have her really help guide me, um, really helped me develop a recipe that I, you know, feel is very authentic. And, you know, like in the article that Brad Johnson wrote, he was like, like, they do better New York pizza than most places in New York. And I almost fell over and died when he said that, like, and Brad Johnson, for people who aren't from the region, is a top two critic in Southern California as it relates to food reviewing. So when he says something like that, you know, outside of posthumously, you know, uh, Jay Gold, like he's the guy around here. Yeah. So that's a that's a big statement and accolade for someone who's never been to New York. Bro, that's a crazy. A Vietnamese guy who's never been to New York opens up a pizzeria that says it's New York style pizza. That's crazy. That's but to, but at the same token, again, I'm not an expert on New York pizza. I've had it a dozen times. I I couldn't tell, and that's from that's me. I'm not from New York. I don't eat it a lot. Um, what makes a New York pizza? So you have a lot of people that like. There's gonna be people that will fight me on this for sure. But yeah. like, just the way like we the way we made it is like it's got to be nice and thin, mm. right? It's got to like they they got to be like big pies. So mm. we serve slices from an 18 inch pie. There are places that will do it like 20 inch pies or 22 or 25, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you got to be able to fold it. Cause in New York, like you walk around, you're on the go. So like these big floppy slices are easy to fold and eat on the go. Yeah. Um, you gotta have not too much sauce. You kind of want the sauce and cheese and crust to almost become one when it comes out. Yeah. Right. So like the cheese shouldn't slide around. Like it almost should like melt into the sauce. So you gotta have the right amount of sauce. You gotta use really good cheese Um, And you got to put just enough. I know a lot of people, like when it comes to American style pizza, like they want all the toppings. They want it to be heavy. Like they want those like that Pizza Hut style where it's like they judge a pizza by how much toppings it has. Mm -hmm. Like New York style pizza, like the less toppings, the better it is. Like if you're going to judge a New York pizza place, try their pepperoni or their cheese. Like that's the best way to go. Right. And the the dough's got to have a really nice chew to it, right? Like the way like New Yorkers like their bagels and their pizza, right? There's just that like nice, pleasant chewiness that it's got to have. Like I liken it to like boba. Like I judge a boba place by how chewy their boba is. Same. Right? And it's like there's so much joy in that like chewiness <laughs> in the food, you know? And then and then it's got to have like that crunch on the bottom, of the crust as well. So you, you get like all these incredible food sensations off of just one slice of pizza. And like, for me, that's what New York pizza is about, you know, and the dough has to have flavor. Like with American style pizza, most of the time, like there's too much dough and bread and mm-hmm. you don't really taste everything. You know, what's sad about New York style pizza in California is that you can eat New York style pizza, but have a smile on your face instead of being pissed <laughs> off. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's a goal. I think that's why we should fight for more New York style pizza here in New York. Uh, here in California. Um, 
Did the success from your restaurants, were they more driven by you, the chef, and your men, your the menu you wanted to put out? And how much was shifted by the customer demand and or media influencers, etc.? Um, I don't know exactly how like food beast coverage affected your business. And if I know it did on some level because there's been loose conversations about it, I don't know for how long and how much, but you know, the things that we covered, like the spaghetti pizza. And by the way, we were not the only people to cover that pizza. So that was a media impact that was larger than just food beast. But that video for us crushed, you know, we had never seen spaghetti on a pizza before we had never seen brunch benedict on a pizza before was that where you wanted it to go or was that iterations of responding to what you think could resonate in a media or customer context yeah i mean i definitely think coming from my catering business where we were doing like these multi-garnished dishes and menus and I went into a pizza place, I think my perception of food like had a really big wake-up call because when we first opened, believe it or not, we didn't serve pepperoni. Oh. Um, and I think it was more just like a social experiment to see like, like, could I survive as a pizzeria and not serve pepperoni? The answer is no. <laughs> the customers were like, uh, like, people would just ask for it, you know? And then when we added it to the menu, it was our best-selling pizza. Like... It, and it's there for a reason. And I learned a lot about listening to your customers, you know, and 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 letting them drive your menu. Um, as far as like our viral pizzas went, I think that like the first one, the spaghetti and meatball pizza came out of frustration um, because I had this like vision for Ginny's, right? We don't want to serve cured meats. Like we want to do like these really like sensible toppings, right? Um, and people weren't really receptive to that and they weren't appreciating it. And so the spaghetti and meatball was kind of like my middle finger <laughs> to all of this like hodgepodge of like food that was like really, I think at that time when we were like, when we launched it, it's like everybody had like, was just smashing things together and serving it and it was getting press and coverage and people were flocking to it to try. And so I was like, I'm going to do this and let's see what people think about it. <laughs> and like, huh. You know, and I was like, yeah. this probably like doesn't even taste good. Like, this is disgusting. You know, like who puts spaghetti and meatball on New York pizza? There are going to be people out there that like, even if you read those comment threads, like when you guys posted the video, people were hating on it. They were so mad, you know, but we did it and it went viral and people would come just for that pizza and everyone was talking about it. And I was like, wow, like this is the power of food beast and and food media like on a restaurant. But it's important cuz those videos got tens of millions of views. Like spaghetti meatballs, the eggs benedict pizza. How how long is that cycle of effect of when 10 million people see a video, maybe a thousand people, a couple thousand people might go yeah, go after that dish from that. But then he, Ultimately, those restaurants closed. Like, Ginny's closed. Yeah. So, as much as I would love to sit here and pat myself on the back on the media end and yourself on a restaurateurship and you tried, right? Like, you went out of your comfort zone to create a dish that wasn't 
part of your original ethos of create. Like you didn't want to do that dish. It sounds like it was angry. Did it? Yeah. Was it? Imp- would you do it again? Like, would you recommend someone else who's going to open another restaurant in this climate to create a wild fucking dish like that? So someone like Food Beast can cover you. You get tens of millions of views on your video, and maybe the sales don't matter. Like if you can get a couple thousand dollars a day from people buying that, but then they forget about you after, like, can you walk us through that? Cause like, this is a really interesting situation to have because no one hears what happens to people after something goes viral. Everyone wants to say, yeah, it's awesome, beautiful. We had a really dope article on foodbeast.com where Pete, one of our one of our staff writers, Fanbot, Fanbot, shout out Fanbot. Um, you'll never see his face. Find it. I dare you. Um, he's a robot that that writes us articles. Um, he went and interviewed people who went viral. Restaurant restaurant who had an item went viral. Some of them loved it. Were able to capitalize on it. Some of them were crushed under the weight of their item being seen by millions of people online. And for some reason, maybe they weren't ready to handle the people coming in. Or maybe it was bullshit. Maybe they got tens of millions of views and no one actually ordered the item because it wasn't sensible to do so. But your resources and time and thoughts are tied into creating something that you think will work on social media and no one gives a shit in real life. At the end of the day, if you don't make enough money to pay the people that you need and things just sour up, it doesn't matter what's cool on social media doesn't matter what Fubi says. Yeah. Like, can you walk us through like kind what of the ha- emotional spectrum? Because uh, answer Eli's question, but I'm just the the spectrum that must be involved with. I brought New York pizza without going to New York, and it was rated as better than New York pizza by a reviewer. I have videos with tens of millions of views on on multiple occasions and not just food beast you were covered by yeah, everyone a ton of people for those pizzas and i think the average person in our audience is going to say 10 million views translates to a million dollars or something yeah. like people or think that's it all the time or yeah. something yeah. it doesn't yeah. have to be a million but they're gonna be like success that's success that's if i open a restaurant all i need to do is get somebody like Food Beast to cover an item. It's seen by 10 million people. I'm on the map forever. I'm cashing out. That's the feedback we get from consumers, and i love for you to level with them. Yeah. Um, you know what? I, I, I guess to that, like, I, I was just having this conversation the other day, but I think a great example to really help put things in perspective is you know, how many of us have seen those like really like outrageous recipe videos on like Facebook or Instagram, right? Like how many of you guys out there have actually made any of those recipes, right? Or are we just kind of like gawking at them, right? And I feel like that's the equivalent of restaurants who create like viral sensations. Like, yeah, some of them do get people who come in and order. We had people that came in and order those pizzas all the time. But for big chunk of it i think a lot of people were just staring like it's a car accident right they're like oh my god like who did this like why did they do this and they just want to see it you know but they're never going to come out of their way to try it it wasn't my favorite like you had great pizza thank you 
you probably still have great pizza. I don't know if you're doing it on the side. Like, but <laughs> the spaghetti meatball pizza was not my favorite. I ordered it when I like took clients or friends, right? Like, cause yeah. I was like, who am I to not give you the fucking spaghetti and meatball yeah. pizza that the whole world just saw? But it wasn't my favorite. And I think that's a problem because the cheese pizza's fire. The pepperoni pizza's fire. But if everyone's first taste of your quality pizza is the one that's not quality, mm-hmm. if it's the spaghetti and meatball mm-hmm. on top, that's a weird dichotomy. That's a weird thing. And that other restaurants do that shit all the time. So like if you're making something that doesn't taste good, but that's their entry point, like, ooh, what's, the, lo- what's the longevity? You're in it, you're 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 in for a, a world of hurt. Because you don't people don't need to give a restaurant a second try. You're lucky if you get a first try. Yeah. You're lucky if you can get people to come the first time. Yeah. So if the first time people have to see something gross. The pizza wasn't gross, but it's not like when you take a pizza lover, they're going to try the spaghetti and meatball pizza and like they have to go through the spaghetti and the meatball to get to your pizza. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you guys took care of the spaghetti and meatball, but it probably wasn't your pride and joy. I'm speaking for you. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. You know, we, I I didn't love that pizza. A lot of our cooks didn't like making it, you know, and they didn't like eating it. Like it was not my favorite pizza either. And you're not wrong there, you know, and I think that was definitely one of the struggles of being a ranked and rated pizza restaurant that was known for, like we actually could make pizza yeah. but then we were just in this struggle of like okay like but we also have to market yeah you know and so now we were like like creating these viral sensation pizzas and those were i mean those were our two successful ones we had other ones that we did that you guys covered that didn't take off as well either you know and people need to know that is like we tried we tried a, with a lot of stuff we um, like we, we put uh spam on pizza. We mm. had ramen on pizza. Like we did, you know, we put cup noodles on pizza, right? Like we did all these different ones and those two just happened to stick, you well, know? Eggs Benny's fire though. That shit was good pizza. That Every, one was delicious. Was so good. I mean, you guys sous vide those eggs, like the hollandaise was fire. Like that's good. Every biting through the egg first, like the egg's delicious. The hollandaise delicious. Damn, I'm back at the pizza. The base is delicious incredible that one is a good i felt really happy because i got to taste that one first yeah and i felt really stoked filming that pizza i I know this is good that's one of my favorite videos of you because i just like even you talking about it i just remember remember in the video you had like egg yolk (laughs) and i didn't give a shit i loved it and it was so pretty it was (laughs) so pretty thank you there's a lot of haters out there that don't like food in a beard Shout out to everyone who's making fun of me on that sour patch cereal (laughs) 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 just trying out here guys but so Ginny's, that I, I appreciate your honesty and the insight. You um, really do, because that's not it's not an easy thing to talk about. People yeah. don't talk about that shit, man. So that's that's fucking awesome that you do. Um, can we talk about the fried chicken spot? Because I I loved and Jeff, you just said it was your favorite fried chicken. Like I'm literally getting emotional <laughs> that you can't just that walk we're about over to there. talk about the fried chicken uh, that I can't get anymore. Rooster Republic. Rooster Republic. And I think the connective tissue for for first off, I said it in the beginning, fucking favorite fried chicken ever. Thank you. And and so I miss it. The connective tissue to the conversation. Both of these restaurants are in a specific city, Santa Ana, California. Yeah. And to me, someone who's... As cop cars roll by. (laughs) To me, 
someone who experiences restaurants on a pretty insane level of the opportunity to taste things, see things, try things, not only locally, but around the country. God, your concepts are so good. Like, I fucking love Ginny's. Thank you. And I fucking love Rooster Republic. And I frequent in them. And to me, obviously, there's some there's a personal bias of I like this food and I want it to exist. But separating myself from this personal bias, the concept the concepts were fucking strong, Nathaniel. They were really strong. Thank you. Not only in the quality of the food, but in how you were presenting them. And for me, it's a dark day when someone goes through all that thought, someone goes through all that research, and they're just not available anymore. How much do you equate that to be location? Because I equate it to be almost everything. And that's coming from me working in Santa Ana, looking at the municipal local landscape and having, you know, and being very experienced in this local landscape. I'm sure there's a number of factors. But now that you're a consultant and you're looking back, what were the main reasons that those two concepts didn't didn't make it? And if you were to do it again, what would be what would be the changes? Because I don't think you should change the concepting. You might disagree with that. But I thought the concepting was really strong and so I'm curious about your thoughts about that. Yeah, um wow. Okay. You know, so I, I still spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about those restaurants as well, you know, because you're right. I did pour a lot of my time and, and my love and my heart and, and my passion into them. And, you know, I, I, I think that the one thing looking back, I wish I had done a better job of is seeing what the local community wanted. I was, I was creating concepts and, and cooking food for what the market wanted, what, what the food scene wanted. And I wasn't really focused in on the locality of, okay, who are the people who are going to walk here and eat, eat this for dinner every day? You know, so I, I ignored the most important part of who would be our core customer base. And that was the people who lived within walking distance. So we got people who loved fried chicken from LA and would come down and eat at Rooster Republic but they couldn't do that every day and they couldn't support us every day, you know, and, and they were comfortable and fine with paying that price because compared to LA, like we were a steal, you know, but compared to some of the local food options around here, like people would go broke eating there every day. And that was, that was a big struggle for us is we want to serve the best we can, but are the people in this community, you know, can they afford that? And are we willing to make those concessions so that they can afford it? But what does that mean we have to give up in the quality of food? And we weren't willing to make that concession. And I think that's part of one of the decisions of why we felt like we had to close is it just, it was a great concept, but it just wasn't the right time and place for it. Would you do anything? So would, would you pick a different location or spend more time in the community that you're about to serve for that next project? Is that kind of what I'm gleaning from what you were saying? Yeah, I, I, I 
don't think that I would open a rooster or a Ginny's again in this area. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like there is a much better place to serve that food somewhere else. Um, and paying attention to what yeah people want, I think, is really important where you're going to be. You know, if I had spent more time, if I didn't have like two and a half months to open Ginny's and had that time to really sit down and say, okay, it's not just what is missing, but what do people really want here? Um, I, I might have developed a concept that we would have more longevity, you know? If I imagine closing the doors of Food Beast and then doing it again, I don't think I could. And, I, and I'm curious about how you feel. Like, Do those concepts to you, is that even in the realm of possibility of you could open them again? Because to me, like I... Like I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. Yeah. And I can't imagine someone who put just that much effort and time and then had to deal with the emotional aspects after it. Or is it better suited for you to take that knowledge and now into your consulting and like, you know what, here's what I learned from my strong brands but location, 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 understanding people, people, people. Um, like, could you open those concepts again if like uh, more stars align? Like, here's a bag of money. Here's a, a location. Or is it better just like, no, nah, I'm going to monetize my knowledge and help other people with their concepts because I can't revisit those brands again. You know, we we had a lot of, we still have a lot of people that will DM those Instagram accounts and ask us if we ever plan on opening again. And I do spend a lot of time thinking about it. Um, but I think personally for me, you know, um, it would be too hard to do that again because even closing them was hard. And and I don't want people to think that like, oh, location was like the only reason we closed. There was a lot of, you know, personal reasons that went into that as well. Like my quality of life was suffering. My relationships with my friends and family, my romantic relationships, they were all failing um, because I prioritized my businesses over everything else. So a big part of also deciding to step away from those concepts was that I wanted my life back, you know, and like everything that it takes to run a successful business, let alone run a successful restaurant, let alone run two successful restaurants that are two completely different concepts. Like it takes a toll on you. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I don't know at this point in my life if I have what it takes to go back and do those two concepts again. It, mm -hmm. it is, it's tough. There's a lot of um, memories there because I worked with, you know, family and, and people that I loved and that are no longer in my life. Um, so I, I couldn't, I don't know if I could open that book again. They're no longer in your life as a result of the business? Yeah, yeah. Um, is, that, is that both from a significant other perspective and a family member perspective? I, you know, um, so my, like my family and a lot of my close friends were involved with helping get those restaurants opening and they ended up coming and working and helping out as well. Um, I wouldn't like, like I know like with my brother, for example, right? Like 
like I'm he's still my brother like we're still in each other's lives but I think there's a piece of our relationship that is missing because of that whole process so I didn't like lose him per se but I feel like we did lose a part of each other in that process of working together and opening and then you know closing it together like going through that process together because I still remember when that article came out like hugging him and and being super excited and and just dreaming of all of the things that we wanted to do as brothers for that concept and then you know and then thinking on the day where we closed it and just how everything in his eyes changed and how everything changed for me like you know like we, there's a part of us that we're never going to get back when um there's a lot of not a lot there's unique people that are opening restaurant one and while that's going on that same year they might open restaurant two and restaurant three and i think there's a a food hall culture that kind of it may not be true but it seems like it's making restaurateurship a little bit easier to enter because it's like well you don't have to go like jeff mentioned earlier sign into a three-year lease six-year lease whatever like food halls are a little bit more flexible on that at what point because Ginny's open before rooster yeah pizza spot before the chicken spot i mean what gave you the confidence to open a second spot like was was the was what signs of success were happening at Ginny's that made you feel, you know what, let's let's open chicken now. Let's open another spot. Because I see other restaurateurs opening three, four, five concepts in a year. And I'm just like, I look at their concepts. They're cool. But like, if there's not a line all the time at those places, like I'm assuming you're, I don't know what the metrics of success are. I just assume it's cash in. Like that is the ultimate level of success. Like, are you selling things? What was going on at Ginny's that made you feel confident going in? Or was it another one of those moments where it was like, there's an opportunity. If I don't do it now, I might miss that. Now I have two things, two things that are like cash intensive, people intensive, emotion intensive, like time intensive. Time intensive. Like, yeah, dude, I can't imagine. Like you, you were talking a little bit earlier about how your level of like freedom now, like you feel like your stress and anxiety is gone because you know that like the tech's coming in. Uh, like in the middle of the night or six at normal hours that are coming in are usually about they're now positive. It's like, yeah, it's either like new business coming in, like, hey, I need this or can you help me on this? Yeah. Or it's a friend like, yo, you want to hang out? Like it's all positive as opposed to probably fire after fire after fire. <laughs> or like, literal fire. Literal, literal fire. Fires, literal yeah. fire after fire. So like I can't imagine. Why did you open the gin? Why did you open the chicken spot? Oh, You know, um, I I have a problem saying no. <laughs> you know, the <laughs> opportunity should. came to us, and and you know the the team that opened the food hall where we later went to go open Rooster. You know, they came to us and they said, "Hey." Originally, they approached us about a dessert concept because we had a dessert concept that we owned, and they wanted us to put a dessert concept in there. And I think one of the other tenants that was supposed to go in dropped out. And the the guys over there, the team over there were like, hey, we really want um, fried chicken. Fried chicken's really hot right now. And we'd love for you to do something with fried chicken. And I think in the same vein where, you know, when we got, we got sat down and was like, we need pizza, you know, and we were able to deliver. I think that that confidence carried over to fried chicken where I was like, 
do we think we can make the best fried chicken people have ever tried? And we said, yes, as a team, we said, yeah, we can do that. So we, we wanted to see if people would agree with that, you know, and that's, I think what led us to that is part ego, part confidence, you know, but part success rate that we had with our other concepts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's just wild, man. When you were, when you were working on, uh, both, I believe it's both businesses and correct me if I'm wrong, but your significant other previously was involved in both Ginny's and Rooster Republic. Was am I correct or not? Yeah. So, um, he, he actually was not a part of the restaurant industry before. So we actually met like right before Ginny's opened. And, um, you know, he left everything he had, um, his job, uh, everything he had dreams for himself um, to support me in my dreams to open these restaurants and, um, you know, came on board to help me see these come to life. Um, and, and that's kind of how he got involved. You know, he never done anything in the restaurant industry before he was working in the leather business, you know, and that has nothing to do with food. And, you know, just thinking about it makes me really emotional because, you know, he, like, just imagine how much it takes someone to love another person, um, to say like, what I want out of my life doesn't matter right now because this is what you want out of life and I'm going to help you get that. Um, and, and that's what he did for me in helping get these open. I could not have done it. It would have never been a reality if he wasn't on our team helping me with all of that. How did you guys decide what working together was going to look like once he, cause first, first of all, that's an amazing sacrifice. Yeah. Um, and I don't know this person, but that's, there are millions of people across this country and this world that are sacrificing their own personal goals for the people that are in their lives and the hats off to, to all of them. But once that decision was made, how did you guys figure out that you were managing this and they were managing that? And there's, you know, that just seems so complex, but at the same time, there's potentially positive benefits too. I mean, when Eli and I disagree, there's positivity that I think we can look at each other and get through it because of how close we are. And in the moment, it is so frustrating because we know the positives and negatives about each other that we like and don't like. And it gives us a crazy power over each other because we know each other so well. Yeah. Subconsciously or consciously, we can push buttons with each other. And and that can have real effect. And it can get the effect that we want. We are not in, intimately related. In a relationship. Darn. Which, which Jeff. <laughs> that, that rumor got squashed. <laughs> and so we aren't. We are good friends. We are close friends. He's one of my closest friends. 
I can't imagine the layers on top of that when there's intimacy involved, when there's potential longevity in a relationship involved. You got to go home to that same person that you feel like that type of way. Because, like, again, uh, I, one of my favorite parts of a lot of, like, restaurant renovation shows is, like, when Gordon Ramsay walks in and, like, tears apart a marriage. Basically, he's like, look, wife, you are way better in the front of the house man husband you are awful dude you no one wants to talk to you you're a shithole go in the fucking back and do what you do best you know yeah like it, but it took a third party to do that and they gordon doesn't have to go home with those people at the end of the night so he could say it and then viscerally like they figure it out like that's wild like when jeff and i like talk about stuff and it's like if we're having a conversation about something and we're just Again, it might be pushing each other's buttons or just like working through something. We have the luxury of going home, recalibrating, and then coming in, dabbing each other up in yeah. the morning. And we're good because we know like our vision, like we're still working towards the same goal. But like I don't have to sit in bed with Jeff at the end of the night and like fume or like think about what we talked about. And that's why like I, I can't imagine working with a significant other. Um and, ha- and having to go through that. So I-, I know there's like questions too that like people sent in about when they heard about heard about you and heard about like just the idea of working and starting a business with a significant other. A few questions came in. Yeah. And, and I still still want to ask you about kind of the roles that mm-hmm. you decided on. And then on top of that, uh, a friend of the show, Nick Chipman of Dude Foods, specifically asked how did business collaboration affect that home life that that Eli was talking about and so if you could talk about roles and and how that affect I mean it sounds like it had an it sounds and it feels the I can feel that it affected your personal life um just talk take us through a bit more of of that side yeah um you know I wouldn't I wouldn't wish something like this on any new relationship and and I think that's the important part to know about this is there's a lot of people out there that are, are married to their business partner. You know, my, my mom and dad, when I was growing up, they worked together. Um, so there are many people who are doing it successfully. And I think one of the first challenges we ran into was, you know, we were in a new relationship and we were starting a business together. And then we were also like moving in and living together. Like that's a lot of stresses to put on anybody, let alone a relationship, you know, and in, in terms of like, figuring out what we were going to do. We thought we had it all figured out. Like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to focus on the operations and culinary side, and then you're going to focus on the financial and accounting side, right? Um, But anyone out there who owns a business, you know, you guys know this. Like, there's going to be a time and place where you have to put on a hat you never thought you'd have to put on. And I think that really pushes and challenges you because if you're in a relationship, it's like, okay, whose turn is it to wear the mystery hat? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like I, I wore the last two mystery hats. Like it's your turn to take care of this, you know, and, and there was just a lot of that. And, you know, so we were like living together, working together. Like we were, it was just, you know, I, I didn't like there was, we were always talking about work or we were always talking about the employees, you know, and, and we didn't really have time to grow our relationship with each other because we were busy growing the business, you know, and, and that affected our, our personal life and our relationship a lot you know, a lot. So there, there are people out there that 
you know, I, I have close friends that run businesses with their significant other and, and they're doing fine and they're doing great. And when I talked to them about the challenges I was experiencing in my own relationship, you know, the advice they gave me that I wish I had known a lot sooner was, you know, make sure you establish, you know, your relationship before you do anything like that. Get to know that other person, know their strengths, know their weaknesses, know how much they can take and how much you can take before you embark on something like that and just test the strength of each other all at once right away. So don't like start the, dating the first, don't start dating the while you're opening a business. Like don't start that at the same time you're starting your business. Yeah. That's gotta be like the, no, like the through line on all of it. Cause there are successful folks that have opened together, but it seems like the relationship was already in stone. A bit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We had a, we had another list, listener question from Tiffany Chung and she asked if your partner is being unrealistic or impractical what's the best way to address this while staying true to your own core values morals and that seems like a very specific question in the sense that it might be happening to this person but when you when you ran into challenges maybe it's the mystery hat you just talked about how did how did you talk about it? how did you communicate how did you figure it out was it was it as as simple and complex as you just kept pushing or what is there something tangible that people can get from your experience uh, so that question she asked, it sounds like she's talking about me because in, in the, you know, the business partnership, I tended to be the one that was impractical, you know, not very rational in a lot of things. I, I lead with my heart a lot. I'm a very emotional person. Um, and that, that prompts a lot of challenges. I'm a big dreamer, you know, I had big dreams all the time. And I always talk about, you know, we're going to do this and do that. And I think the thing that really helped, um, I, w- I wouldn't even necessarily say like it helped because it was kind of like a common problem with me was that like it was really hard to get me to come down from being impractical with some of my ideas sometimes. But I think, right, like you guys know this, like as a business owner, sometimes you got to take those risks. Sometimes you got to challenge those ideas, things that work, that don't work, and you got to experiment. And I had a really hard time backing down from that because it's like I'd, I'd rather – try this and fail than to wonder what would have happened if I had tried that idea. And that, that was kind of the situation I was in where I was like, I want to try this. And then I would get the feedback of like, I don't think that that's a good idea. I don't think that's going to work. And then I'd be like, well, how would you know? Cause we haven't tried it yet, you know? And it's just like, I couldn't see past my own ideas to be able to say like, maybe this might not work. I was always too optimistic, like this could work. So that's why we have to try it. Never like we shouldn't try this because this might fail, you know? And do you think your approach is a bit different now because of going through that? And is it still dreaming, but maybe bringing in some of the practicality into those dreams as well? Like what's the... What's happening in your mind after the fact? Because I can't imagine, and it's really interesting, because Eli is a dreamer, and I'm very practical. <laughs> so there's 
this that sort of dichotomy i think happens in all sorts of relationships and that doesn't mean i don't dream and that doesn't mean he's not practical yeah it's just like when you when we have conversations i'm the first one to question it and he's the first one to say let's do it right yeah and and so i'm curious if if because of what you've been through has that shifted your own dreamer perspective in a certain direction yeah definitely um i have learned to be a better listener, you know? I think that's the thing that I really took away from all of that is I, I learned to listen more and to hear everyone's perspective on a situation because everyone's opinion, you know, is important because of their unique life experiences that got them to think that way. And it's made me a lot more open-minded to hearing, okay, let me hear why you don't think this is a good idea and let me really think about it and and see it from your perspective why you feel that way as opposed to just saying like okay you're not willing to take that risk because you're scared not because okay you're not willing to take that risk because something got you to like arrive at that decision you know so i've i've definitely become a lot more welcoming of being able to hear every perspective of a, of a situation before i just say like this is a great idea now or a bad idea. Or a bad idea, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's one of the most fun parts to me. Because I, I like that growth, that parallel. Because that's like, I feel like if I've like picked up anything over the past like couple years, yeah. it's just like, just being able to listen for a little bit. Like it, it's, it, it works wonders on your soul to just sit and listen instead of like just jumping like and i think as like entrepreneurs you have this like especially early on you have this knack for wanting to do everything yeah because like that's the spirit like this is the spirit if you didn't have that spirit you wouldn't be doing it you would be doing shit yeah you'd be doing not that yeah so to eventually find that balance it's, it's important to like not completely lose the spark Right. Like listen, but also be pushy. Uh, it's it's fun to see. It's fun to see the silver linings. Like I don't want people to think like it's scary to open a restaurant. Yeah. I think that's why it's like you going into consulting and understanding that like you're there to help people find their dreams and, and push through there. So I think that's that's crazy valuable. And that is a great silver lining. This isn't a, a negative outlook on restaurateurship. Yeah, it's just the all. idea of like. Yo, you want a viral video? Like, understand what comes with it. Understand how to capitalize on it. Understand that product is always first. Um, and that's in every industry. Food, whatever it is. Like, if your product is do- is dope, it's good, like, there should be some light at the end of your tunnel. Yeah, for sure. I got I got one more listener question, if I may. Let's run it. Thank uh, you for listening, by the way, everyone. Yeah, <laughs> that's exciting. Uh, Rosie Norton asks... How do you stay objective in your business dealings and operations when things at home can affect you so viscerally? So instead of how things coming home, how do you not affect the things at home affect the decisions that you need to be made? And and you've talked a bit about this already, that there was a balance between the type of decision making that was happening, but... To you, how how important was it to, if there was something happening outside of the business in the relationship and a decision need to, 
to, to be made. Can you make that decision without bringing in all of the other stuff that's connected to you and this person? Um, were you able to do that? Were you not? Did you want to do it? Could you not? I'm curious about where you stand in this spectrum and how important you think being, quote unquote, being objective is with things like finances or things like employees or things that, you know, come with their own loaded situations. Hmm. So I, I think this is something we actually were able to do really well was kind of leave our personal lives, you know, at the door when we got to work because more than anything, you know, we cared about our team and our employees and we knew it was really unfair to them to let any of that flood in into the business and, and make it a problem of theirs when it didn't need to be. Um, and that has its pros and cons, right? Like it was good because like even when, like like while the restaurants were open, like was when my relationship started to end and fall apart, right? So like even when the relationship ended, like our employees didn't know for months, you know? And I think that speaks to how professional, you know, we were able to be in that situation um, right. But like some of the cons is like, if you always keep pushing that aside, like you never really get to address it and it just feels fake after a while. Like when you're at work and you have to like, look at the other person and you're like, Hey, like we didn't finish the conversation. We'd started this morning on the commute up here. Right. And that just always kind of like sticks in the back of your mind. So it can be very distracting and it keeps you from doing your best work because you're thinking about how this, that conversation is going to pick up when we're not here anymore. So that, that's like the two sides of the coin that like my experience with it was like. I, I can't thank you enough for speaking openly. Yeah, dude. Um, I knew it was a pretty big ask for you to come on. And I was doing my best to try to assure you that it was going to be a safe place. But also that. We kind of have questions for because you you'd been through something that we hadn't experienced. Um, so I just want to thank you, and we thank all our guests. But this is a very like heartfelt thank you because uh, these subjects are are not easy. They're not easy for me to necessarily listen to either. And I think, but I think that's important about why we have this podcast and and why we're having these conversations. Uh, if one person out there is like going through it yeah. and their business or their family and yo, the shit's going on with other people too. Yeah. Real people. We're sitting here talking about it. We're looking at real people. So please like, get it dog. Where, pl- where can they follow you? Please find Nathaniel on Instagram. Noon at Nathaniel's um, noon, like the middle of the day. Noon yeah, at yeah, Nathaniel's. Yeah. That's pretty fire. That's a fire handle. I, I respect that. Um, guys, keep, uh, if you guys listen to this on the iTunes store, iTunes podcast store, please leave a review. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't like, what you want to hear more of. You want Nathaniel on again, leave that comment. I appreciate you guys. Um, tweet at us at Jeffrey Kutnick at book of Eli. Um, and until next week. Yeah. And, and a note from, from me, Jeff is 
we're gonna, I'm going to be a bit more active on Twitter, both on the Food Beast account and myself, as well as uh, on IG with stories about getting your questions on the pod. So please follow us and please communicate with us about who you want to see on the pod and the questions that you have for upcoming guests. Uh, again, that's Book of Eli and Jeffrey Kutnick, and that Jeff's with a G. Thanks. God, you told people that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's killing me, so I'm going to mention it a little bit more, even though they're still going to search G-E-F-F. It's also big news that Jeff is active on Instagram now. <laughs> the, that is... That is bro, look, look at his Instagram, at Jeffrey Kutnick. You will see two posts that are new, and then the last post were probably like from two years ago. <laughs> So that's what's true. up. It's if, true. If we've done one thing with this podcast is we brought one more person <laughs> to Instagram. Good Lord, they needed it. All right. Um, Thanks again, Nathaniel. Really, yeah, Nathaniel. really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me, you guys. Thank you. All right. Bye, guys. <laughs>